Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Hello. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. I have Louise Nealon on the program today. She is the author of a debut novel called Snowflake, critically acclaimed number one international bestseller, available now in North America from Harper Books. Snowflake is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the TNB Book Club. That's my monthly book club. For more on that, go to thenervousbreakdown.com. But, uh, you know, basically the way it works is you sign up for the book club, you get a book delivered to your door every month. I interview book club authors on this program, and it makes for a nice holistic experience. A few quick reminders. The Other People podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that? This happened over the past year. And uh, I just want to flag it. If you could subscribe to the YouTube channel, I would appreciate that. The entire archive of this podcast is now on YouTube, and it's free. Go smash the uh, subscribe button, as they say. Secondly, if you like this show and you have a few minutes uh, on your hands and you don't mind rating and reviewing this show over at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you listen, that would be great. I would appreciate that. Apple Podcasts is probably the best place to do it if you have to pick one, that or Spotify. But if you rate and review the show, it helps the show find new listeners. I would be obliged. Lastly, I do want to remind listeners about the Patreon for this show. This is a listener-supported program. The entire archive of this podcast is available to you for free. That's more than 700 episodes and counting. Uh, if you like the program and you listen regularly and you have the means, please consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. 
there are different tiers, different levels of support. As you go up the uh, scale, you can get stuff like a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard. I will wish you a happy birthday. But it will help to sustain this program into the future. And I hope that you'll consider it if you can. Once again, it's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right? Okay. So Louise Nealon is today's guest. Her debut novel, Snowflake, is a number one international bestseller. How about that? And it is available now from Harper, the official September pick of the TNB Book Club. Very pleased to have Louise on this program. I really enjoyed meeting her. We had a delightful conversation. I'm excited to share it with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Louise Nealon, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Snowflake. There's two ways that we exist, through competition and through cooperation. And there's... uh, Debbie, who is the main character in Snowflake, and she is um, balanced between these two opposing um, modes of of being in the world, with with um, Billy being her uncle who lives in um, a garden in the back of their uh, house in a caravan, and Maeve, who believes that she can dream other people's dreams, and Debbie is is pulled in these two opposite directions. And with that, she she meets a friend in college, Xanthi, who she believes is the epitome of, of perfection. And she competes with her. She competes with the idea of her. And it's only when they find vulnerabilities in each other that they're, they're both able to find a deeper connection and and find like a bond with each other and and that's kind of what this what the what the story that I was trying to say or or um kind of create was to uh break down those those uh competitive um walls that that people create internally competition has always bummed me out I'm like a guy, you know, I'm an American uh, white guy. I'm supposed to be into competition. Like, that's what I've been told by my country (laughs) since I was born. You know, you you compete in the marketplace and you win and, you know, all this stuff. And I've always been, even like sports, I'm like, but somebody's got to lose. And the person who loses feels like shit. And I think, I guess, maybe people who who are uh, less sensitive than I am are like, well, so what? (laughs) It's the way it goes. (laughs) But... You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and listen, I'm not saying there should be no sports. I'm just saying that, like, by lionizing competitive prowess, we sort of lose sight of the fact that there's somebody's losing. A lot of most people are losing, uh, especially yeah. when it comes to like capitalism. Like, most people lose and suffer because of it. Like, what are we to do and about that? That's where the low self esteem comes from. And that's why so many people have low self esteem and anxiety and depression and. Like I, I would say that I'm quite a competitive person by nature, and, and my family is competitive. Um, and one of my favorite shows is actually the American show Survivor, um, and I love watching that because it's like 
a bunch of characters on an island and you you never know how how the story's gonna turn out so i see it as like a gem of um observing human nature uh, but i i really yeah i agree like um with with even I, I, I viewed myself as a failure for so long um, during my entire 20s. And with this book, um, after publishing, I'm in a strange position where people are suddenly looking to me for advice, writing advice. And <laughs> I kind of laugh because I don't see myself as, as a success in any way. Um, and I, I'm really uh, quite nervous in interviews and quite unsure of myself and my only sense of agency in my life really has been through writing and been through storytelling and uh, I I look quite young for my age um, and I'm, I'm quite self-deprecating to an uncomfortable extent um, and when I'm in a room by myself with characters who I see as real and who I see as kind of imaginary friends, I don't see that I have any control over the characters. They, the best part of writing is when the characters, you're running to catch up with them and they have stuff, they have stuff that you don't know. I think it was George O'Keefe that said, whether you succeed or not is irrelevant. Um, making your unknown known and always keeping the unknown beyond you is what matters. And for me, that's what I'm always chasing with writing. It's it's expanding your your consciousness and ways of of believing in in the world and and finding the magic. And I feel like competition and a capitalist society kind of narrows our our view of the, of the world and and makes us skeptical and cynical um and and yeah and 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 I think the story that I'm trying to tell is is trying to reclaim some of our naivety because na- like naivety like I think Billy says it in the story naive means it comes from the latin natura to be born so you can't help but being be naive we just pretend to know things, especially because of the internet now, because it's all out there. We pretend to know things. And so it we set up crazy uh, limitations on ourselves. And it's through fiction that we kind of break through to stuff where we're not comfortable with. And it's with fiction that, like, I think that stuff like things that shame just completely goes away and things that I'm suddenly not that I wasn't able to talk about with my family um, or, or with my closest friends, I'm able to think about on the page. And, and that's the same with reading. Um, when, I, when I sit down with someone, with the soul of someone who, who I, I feel like I connect with, uh, that, that's the most powerful way of, of connecting in the world for me. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like there's a lot of solace in it. And I, I want to stay on the topic of competition for like one more minute, just because you've you've spoken of it really eloquently, but you've also copped to the fact that you're very competitive and you come from a competitive family. Uh, I often say I'm not that competitive, 
And then I wonder if I'm just lying to myself because aren't human beings mm -hmm. like hardwired? I don't want to be that guy who like says he's not yeah. when he really is. But like, I really don't think I'm that super competitive. And uh, I guess it's on a spectrum. Maybe I'm like a three or a four on a 10 scale or something. So I feel like I'm not or I don't know, you know. I'm not Michael Jordan. Let's put it that way on the, you know, it's the... something that I really have to clock. Like when I, especially with my, um, my friendships with women. Um, because when you talk about perfectionism, I think there's more of a tendency to be a type A kind of person. Um, and for women, there's unrealistic, um, expectations placed on women by society and, and we're trapped in a competition with each other to impress each other, um, I think, anyways. Uh, and I think men have a similar thing, but it's not as emotional and psychically intense um, as, say, Debbie's relationship with, with Xanthi is. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, uh, I always say to uh, a woman who I see... Um, especially if she's around the same age as me with older women, I, I'm quite, um, uh, I, I would be intimidated by older women. Um, because I, I think that they just have more life experience and they see a young girl uh, coming up and be like, well, who do you think you are? <laughs> and, uh, especially if they've experience of motherhood or whatever, whereas women around my age, I'm 30 now all during my 20s I clocked quite early that the friendships that I had I had to say I'm jealous of you in this way or I admire this in you but I'm I'm also jealous and and uh, kind of expressing that and putting that out on the table was kind of like healthy for our relationship to to move forward yeah um, and yeah that, that's what I find fascinating about uh, female friendships in particular. I really like uh, the work of Elena Ferrante and I think she just does that so, so beautifully. Um, and it's something that isn't really explored in fiction uh, to the extent that it should be because for millennia, men have been read and men have been widely read and we have this whole, um, we have this whole field of uh, female psychology that hasn't really we've only tipped the iceberg in in our um opening up of of uh a female literature yeah i feel like i feel like uh men just don't have relationships at all too often <laughs> they've got they've got nothing to write really? about you know i mean like these friendships there's no connectivity at all it's like they're like watching a game together and like talking about nothing for two hours and that's it and I think part yeah. of the reason why women might have more conflict is because they're realer with one another and the relationships tend to be deeper and more meaningful and more plentiful. Like women, I just think have an easier time bonding. And I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to overstate it because I think that men, you know, some men are great uh, at building friendships and having those kinds of uh, relationships. But, you know, I think that's the exception and not the rule, at least here in the States. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but I'm imagining the blokes at the pub are not exactly like oh yeah it's all it's all based around sports right. sports and <laughs> like music and yeah i i yeah it's 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 quite similar and and alcohol like they'll they'll only tell each other they love them after like 
a million points. Right. Um, right. Like like Billy in the in the story or whatever. What is it about sports as some sort of like emotional bridge? It's so. I mean, listen, I love sports. I can talk sports all day long. I'm a guy, but like I also am able to recognize that there's something strange about the fact that it is like basically the last refuge of most dudes like just they have nothing to talk about except sports it's the only like lingua franca where everybody's comfortable and yeah that's it it becomes like a proxy for like your own failed ambitions and you know you lose a game you speak in the first person plural about your team as if you're on the team yeah 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 you know my wife always (laughs) gives me shit she's like oh you guys lost today you lost you you lost you know <laughs> oh you won i'm like we won we won you know like, oh. but actually it goes a lot deeper in ireland anyways we have um we have national sports so we've hurling and uh football gaelic football wait wh- and... what is what is hurling why do i not know this oh, okay so hurling is uh with there's sticks involved so it's kind of like hockey but it's it's the fastest um field sport in in the world um so there's uh sticks and a, a thing called a slitter and uh so they hit i, I play kmogi which is the female equivalent of it um, and we've helmets it's 15 aside and there's goals and you can score points or a goal um and it's very hard to explain i would i would recommend looking up um hurling on on youtube um, and especially there's a specific american responding to to hurling that is hilarious <laughs> uh, it's probably what i'm most proud of being irish um having hurling as a sport football is very similar but uh, it's not it's not similar at all but it, in terms of emotional um, connection, like Mayo uh, is a county in Ireland and they lost the All-Ireland final yesterday for the millionth time. And and people see it as a curse, like the Mayo curse and the curse is going to be broken. And then, and then they lost again. And the whole county is just depressed. Like <laughs> so, like so fundamentally like not well and there was banks giving out loans for people to go to them to be able to afford to go to the match and i think men especially are so repressed in ireland that if you give them like sport is their is their language like even men who don't like sport always know what what's going on in each sport so that they have some sort of foothold in in the emotional landscape of of the psyche of the country. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's incredible. No, yeah. we have we have exact parallels for that. I mean, for years it was Boston, the Red Sox, this baseball team had a curse and you know, whenever there's a team that hasn't won the championship in a long time, they'll take on this sort of guise of, you know, we're cursed and there's something there's a darkness, you know, over us or whatever and uh I read and have talked before on this show once or twice about this theory. It's like a theory of the case with regard to why men and in particular I think like like working class men, but not just, you know, just any man who feels maybe d- disempowered in his life in some way or not in f- control to the degree that he wished that he would. Uh, I'm thinking in particular about politics. You know, like if you feel mm-hmm. disenfranchised in some way, um, like sports becomes an arena where you can 
experience like the success of a team by proxy uh Absolutely. So, you know and then all the memorization of statistics and player names and team history and the politics within the league and the rules of the game and all the ways in which sports fans kind of fanatically obsess about their teams I, you know the the thing that i'm recalling that i read which i of course i can't remember where it was or who wrote it was basically talking about like imagine if that same uh, fanaticism and devotion and energy were channeled into say the public square you know keeping <laughs> keeping track of like the the comings and goings of legislators and what they're up to and you know what they're doing on your behalf or not and you know it's a, it's a weird like it's a weird place for all of this psychic energy to go yeah. and it's very common yeah. from it's not just like an american phenomenon it's not just an irish phenomenon no. it's a global no, thing it's so universal but yeah. in the same way, it's like it's competition and also cooperation and it's us and them. And it's the balance of, you know, the the universal sort of identity, at, like, but as a team. So you're local. I, I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, but, you are. And yeah. I'm thinking, too, you know, just the ways in which. Uh, like sports functions, I think, as a kind of. It's like the original reality TV. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, because you can, like, if you don't understand a game, like, I could watch Hurling and it would probably take me a while to figure it, figure it out. I need to, well, you need to understand the rules of the game in order to be able to enjoy being a spectator. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but once you have that, then you can start to enjoy it, I think. And if you're watching a sport that you understand and it's a good game, especially if there are stakes, however imaginary those stakes may be, <laughs> you know, these, yeah. cha these championships, like the, you know, somebody wins the, like the American football championship and it's like, we're world champions. And you're like, well, you know, who says it becomes like kind of silly to, uh, yeah. you know, the language games that people play, but whatever, like you get invested in it. And I like the fact that it is this human drama unfolding in real time with stakes that mean a lot to all of the participants and all, most all of the spectators. Uh, and yeah. if you're why it can be riveting television. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you've watched a hurling match and been totally like locked in on it. And absolutely. Yeah. But it is storytelling. Like you're buying into it. There's a suspension of disbelief. Like if some, if someone comes in and they don't know the rules of the game and they don't know the stakes there, it's just like, what the hell, what's going on? Like, yeah. and why do we care so much? Whereas, like, you're like, you don't know. It's like someone coming into a series. Like, I remember um, my friend came around. We were watching Lost uh, when I was, like, 14. And she came around and she was like, why is everyone so involved? Like, why do you care so much? And you're kind of like, you don't know. You don't know my life. <laughs> so yeah. You're just, like, you're just invested. And we got to be invested in stuff. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, what's the point, you know? Otherwise, what's the point? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People Podcast. If you're like me, and if you love George Saunders, you're not going to want to miss this. As a literary podcaster and a devoted reader and a fan of the arts, I try to do my best to support the public humanities. That's why I hope that you'll join me in attending Humanities New York's annual benefit event this year. Join New York Times number one bestselling author George Saunders, a past guest on the Other People podcast. He will be in conversation with author and professor Imani Perry for Humanities New York's third annual History and the American Imagination Benefit. The live discussion will take place online on October 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Purchase your tickets at humanitiesny.org and use the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, other PPL and get half-off membership tickets. That's humanitiesny.org, and use the offer code OTHERPPL. All right? I'll see you there. I can't stop. I mean, I've, I like to critique myself sometimes for being, like, that guy who's into sports, but, like, I love sports. It's okay You're to be You're not competitive, a... though. But I'm not. I mean, I like to play, but I don't care who wins. I never – I mean, maybe I did when I was a kid. I could get into it. Like when I was playing right. uh, what we call soccer, you know, here in the States, or you call football, like yeah. I played and I could get into it. I think like I had some of that, but ultimately it was just like, I don't care. Like, it's okay. Like afterwards I was fine. And like, I think sometimes I can be frustrating to friends of mine who have a different orientation towards their fandom than I do, because I'll be kind of intellectualizing the game as it's happening I don't wear a lot of gear. I'm not a gear person. I don't get the jersey and like, I'm not doing that, but I will sit there and I like, like, this is going to sound sort of uh, snotty, but I like the intellectual, st- I like the stim, like it's mentally stimulating for me to watch a game unfold that I really understand the mechanics of like the strategy and seeing how the coaches are making changes. Like I love that part of it. And then I can also be, I think sometimes maybe too uh, clinical when my team is losing, like not emotional enough. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And like yeah. my friends but, are like, my friends were like, you know, on board and I'm like, no, they've, you know, they're because losing. Because they've, they've more invested emotionally, whereas you're, you're taking an intellectual standpoint. <laughs> that's kind of like protecting you on some level. Maybe that's what it is. I, I, I'm too scared to care. I'm scared of how much I care, maybe. I don't want to get hurt again, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, you know, it's, uh, you know, that part of Irish culture is in your book, you know, there are hurlers and I mean, it's not a, it's not like a central feature, but you definitely touch upon it. 
and other things that I think are endemic to Irish culture that are themes in the book that you're working on and wanting to explore and correct me if I'm wrong or feel free to add anything that I've missed would be mental health. Uh, we've, you know, I, you said the word repression earlier, which I think is sort of uh, universal, but might have, you know, might be more of a thing in Ireland and especially among Irish men. Um, yeah. sub substance abuse, which is like the Irish national, you know, one of the Irish national pastimes, at least in popular culture, um, promiscuity. And I think promiscuity as it relates to church life, right. And the ideas around, um, like sexual behavior, uh, as it is, um, defined by the Catholic church. Is that a fair way? Or maybe just churches in general? I don't know about that. Uh, like there's religion in the book, but it's used as, uh, it's used. I I wouldn't relate to the promiscuity of Maeve to to religious religious shame or anything like that. What about and think... what about Debbie though, the main character? Because like she's got this thing where she's and for people listening who might not have had a chance to read, um, I'm going to do a quick like thumbnail just to get people oriented. Snowflake tells the story of a protagonist named Debbie White. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Debbie White, and she lives on a farm about 40 minutes or 40 miles outside of uh, Dublin. I guess it would be kilometers in Ireland. So not far from Dublin, but out on the farm in the sticks, as we stay, uh, as we say in the States. And she goes off to Trinity College in Dublin. So we meet this character at this transitional moment in her life. Um, and it's a coming of age story. And it's a campus novel if you wanted to kind of reduce it um, to like standard categories. Um, and she is what, 18 years old and a college freshman and is making out with, she makes out with a lot of guys, but she doesn't sleep with a lot of guys. And so I guess maybe yeah. that's what I, I was wondering if there was some sort of echo of like Catholic guilt. I'm, I was raised Catholic. So, you know, maybe, I'm yeah. maybe I'm projecting here, Louise, but no, I, no, that's interesting. Okay. Cause yeah, <laughs> there's generational trauma from Catholicism in in Ireland um, because the Catholic Church was aligned with the state um, and there was just so much there was so much power given to the Catholic Church in Ireland. It was synonymous with, with the state at one stage and for a long time um, contraception was illegal in Ireland so with with Debbie, yeah, her, she she would um, sh she thinks that be, like sleeping with people or being sexually active, uh, she thinks of that as as dirty, um, and uh, slovenly, and uh, she kind of has a, a complicated relationship that she's she's been handed down, um, so. And it's it very much speaks to real life in Ireland that we're quite liberated now in that most of Irish people now wouldn't be practicing Catholic. Um, oh, really? There's Oh, yeah. So like I'd say 80 percent of um, people who identify as Roman Catholic in Ireland are lapsed. They don't go to church. Interesting. Um, and where the church would still have a stronghold would be in rural areas, uh, and that would be as a as a tradition. 
it's seen as a cultural thing to go to mass and um, right. to catch up with the neighbors and a lot of people would go um they would raise their kids catholic baptize them communions confirmations as a as a cultural thing um but as soon as we grow up and and reach a certain age um people just stop stop going to mass and and it is at that pivotal moment where you're about 18 that uh, people have a decision whether to like go to mass or not um but uh, the there's a shame around um sexuality especially um with female sexuality in in Ireland um and we've just recently uh, legalized uh, abortion um right just as the united writing... just as the united states is trying to roll it back like i don't know if you heard yeah. that is but yeah yeah it's it's such a such a crazy time like i'm very very proud to be irish and we're the first state that um legalized uh gay marriage through referendum through through public vote as well um so I, I'm really proud of that and we've become so progressive from where we were um, because there was a point, not my, so my parents would have grown up in a, in an Ireland that was completely controlled by uh, the Catholic church and we're very much the first generation coming out of that. And so there's a, there's some sort of, um, backlash against it people are very angry about um the um ch- child abuse and stuff that has uh, has come to light um and also the mother and baby homes um wait what is where that there, so there, there's laundries magdalene laundries where uh women who conceived children out of wedlock were sent to and it was they were basically prisons so the children would, would be born in the libraries the, the women would be um, they'd be pregnant, working in the laundries, and uh, when they had their children, the children were put up for adoption um, straight away, and uh, the women were were shamed in into silence, basically. And then they'd go back; they'd have a chance to go back to their normal life, but they'd just given births, and it was usually the local priest who would arrange for the women to be sent away, you know. Um, and so, so that's the sort of cultural, um, or psychological, um, landscape that Debbie is, is dealing with. Right. Um, and actually there's a great, um, biography at the minute, uh, Sinead O'Connor. I'm not sure if you know her. She's, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually no. I read. I love Sinead O'Connor. Um, right. I mean, I shouldn't. She I don't divides. Wanna... She she divides opinion. Um, no, but I but... want to say I read and shared in my newsletter a profile of Sinead O'Connor in the New York Times a couple of months ago. Yeah. It was kind of like a a new a recent profile. Like what's she up to now? Kind of giving. And I felt such affection for her. She was so horribly mistreated after she ripped up that photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and demonized and she was right she was she was protesting as i understood it she was protesting child sexual abuse um, yeah, in the as, church as a victim of as a victim of uh, of abuse herself right and she was given a voice to 
kids that she didn't have. Uh, and she's a great memoir, actually. She's a brilliant writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a great memoir. It's just released recently. I forget what it's called. Rememberings. That's what it's called. And it's the last book that I, I picked up and I didn't stop reading it from from the minute I picked it up. I wonder um, can, I wonder if I can get her on this show. You think she would talk to me? <laughs> <laughs> if, if, yeah, definitely. If well, I could well, track her George down. Saunders on and Maggie Nelson. So, right. yeah, definitely DM her. Yeah. I will. She's on, I... She's on Twitter. Okay. Do. I'm gonna Do d- I'm going to DM Sinead. I feel like... Here's what I feel yeah. like. I feel like what reading that profile and I'm sure what reading the book is a reminder of is that it's a very um, important to remember that a lot of times in really heated cultural moments in particular or just like um, volatile moments in history, there will be certain people who speak out and who are shut down because of it or shouted down or villainized or, you know, called crazy, um, you know, all the different labels that we, you know, saw kind of affixed to her in that time. Those people are often the ones who are telling the truth. Not always, not always, but often. And it's important, especially when there's a lot of like, you know, volatile energy in a culture or in a cultural moment to keep your wits about you and to make sure that you don't, because it could be, you know, I, I think back on it, I mean, I guess I was a kid, so I don't want to penalize myself too much, but I'm not sure. I don't remember being pissed off at her, but I also don't remember like vocally coming to her defense in the way that I, you know, we like to imagine ourselves in heroic uh, terms. It would have been the right thing to do looking back. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but we were just, we were just a bit behind in our thinking right. and that's what made it so difficult for her to speak the truth that she knew and another really important Irish writer who did that was Edna O'Brien, um, who really, she actually had to leave Ireland because uh, she, her, her books were burned by parish priests. And Which I should say is, all, you know, we, we don't, uh, obviously, we, we don't, do not support book burning. But for a writer's career, it's not the worst thing in the world to have your book burned. Like they all... Kind of, all of the really cool Irish male writers at the time were so jealous that like her books were being burned. Right. She's such a badass. She's still alive today and she's a a literary hero of mine. Um, and she really spoke, uh, truths to power, um, when she, uh, had the chance and she wasn't, there was a, there was a recent New Yorker profile on her, actually that was a bit snarky and uh the backlash was such that uh Ireland came to her defense finally nice <laughs> so we did a whole like circle and um and and we're finally like claiming her as as our own cuz the new yorker guy was like uh uh oh she thinks she's the queen of ireland or whatever and we're like yeah yeah she is <laughs> because she she brought us out of a really dark, dark place and uh, gave women a voice in Ireland when we really didn't have one. And she had to escape to, to London after that. Hmm. And uh, and her, her husband was extremely jealous of her. He was a publisher. And once he found out that she was able to write, he said he read her manuscript and he said, you can write and I'll never forgive you. 
and that the marriage didn't last long after that and she left in the middle of the night um seems like a nice guy she, yeah yeah Jeez. <laughs> but she's speaking of speaking her... of speaking of competition my god you know <laughs> her her interviews online you can look her up online she's incredible she's a force i want to say she was a talking head in that uh there's like a, a long form documentary like a two or three part documentary on ernest hemingway that aired on like public television in the united states this past year you know ken burns is that filmmaker yeah like the, yeah. the slow zooms on like an old photograph, you know, with the narration. But I want to say she was in that. I could be mistaken, but I... She could be. Yeah. She did a book on Joyce as well. She, okay. She's really... Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about hurling. We've talked about the church and, um, you know, sexual mores and cultural shifts in Ireland, which are not the primary concern of your book in an overt way. Like they're not front and center, but I'm still glad that we're talking about them because what we're talking about, I think is the underpinnings of the world that Deb is in. And, you know, we've touched on the kind of uh, thumbnail uh, of the plot and I want to make sure to um, illuminate for readers that Deb not only comes from um, a farm family, and is now at Trinity College, which is like the the Harvard of Ireland. Is that a way to put it? Like it's like the best college in Ireland or elite or? Uh, yeah, but like there's also like a <laughs> trainers for winners is is the attitude towards like there's always a begrudgery around. Uh, like if you get into Harvard in in America, everyone's like, oh yeah, go you. Where if if you get into Trinity in in Ireland, everyone's like, ugh, what's wrong with you? Like. <laughs> Right. There's a little bit of that. I think you're better than everybody else. No, but there's a little bit of backlash, I think, with the Ivy League and with uh, these schools. Maybe it's maybe, I don't know. It's a little of both, but I'm sure there's plenty of it under people's breath, you know, when uh, somebody goes off to, or it's not necessarily that somebody goes there. It's when somebody like leads with it. Like I graduated from. Yeah, that's that as well. But like with Ivy League schools, like the fees are ridiculous, and like it, it would cost the same to go to Trinity as it would to go to uh, another university in in Ireland. So it's it's different in that sort of way. It's affordable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a novel concept. Yeah, these private (laughs) schools too. These private schools with their like, I mean, Harvard. Just to let me like bitch a little bit in this sidebar. It has like a multi-billion dollar endowment. It could easily make tuition free for all of its students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, I, and I, I know they subsidize a lot of students, but it's ridiculous that uh, anybody would have to pay whatever, the, you know, 75 grand a year or whatever they have to pay to go there. It's, a, it's nonsense. Yeah, we like in trinity doesn't charge charge that it's there's free education in ireland so it's not it's not free free but like you I, it's a couple of grand a year you know yeah i feel like i'm i mean i i have i am capable of like uh, indulging in like real estate fantasies all over the world i was thinking about italy last night i was like wow what would life be like just on some sort of like tuscan farm and you know i'm constantly like dreaming of uh you know going somewhere and escaping yeah but i gotta say and maybe i'm wrong but i gotta say that like england and ireland and scotland I'm kind of bullish on them. I'm I'm bullish on Ireland, not only because it's coming out of this, like like I think there's something vital and vibrant about a culture that is as Ireland seems to be right now. You know, per your description, it's kind of coming out of this 
phase where the church was aligned with the state and there were a lot of there's a lot of corruption and bad behavior and confusion and maybe waking up from that it's an interesting yeah. time to be in a place and then you couple that with the fact that i think ireland you know is this like well positioned as any like chunk of land on the planet with regard to climate change it's not going to be like 120 <laughs> degrees there you know uh, again we're dealing in fahrenheit here but whatever the math is uh, celsius like it's uh it seems like there will be rain though as, lo as long as you're prepared for rain well listen i live in the desert where we got no rain in los angeles right now so like i take rain we're, we're all dying for rain so maybe you're in the right spot you know it's careful gonna... what you wish for yeah yeah exactly when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, so anyway, you're, you're writing about, um, this young woman who's coming of age, going off to college, making this big cultural shift from the farm to Trinity and mm -hmm. who not only, I think maybe is a bit of an outlier for most freshmen or first year students at Trinity, um, because of her rural upbringing, but also comes from an unorthodox family. You know, you touched on Maeve, the mother who had Deb when she was a teenager, I believe. So this is a mother-daughter relationship between like a 36-year-old mom and an 18-year-old daughter, just to kind of uh, put a chronology on it. And then there's the uncle, Billy, who's a great character who lives in a, you said a caravan behind the house, which I think is just like a Airstream trailer, right? It's like a camper or some sort or? Oh yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't realize he didn't have caravans over there. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like a camper, but okay. it's like on it has no wheels. It's like on blocks. Yeah. So we, I think we would call that like a trailer or like an Airstream or there are different words. Airstream's a brand, but I, you know, just to make sure people stay oriented. Um, so he's living kind of behind the house there. He's kind of a surrogate father figure for Deb mm -hmm. and is kind of, a, um, has a drinking problem, but is entirely lovable and is also very bright and learned in his way. Um, I don't know, just a great vivid, lovable character so she's coming from this family situation and now she's mixing with kids like uh xanthi who is more uh well, like you say posh in ireland how would you put it like, yeah yeah she's like the <laughs> posh friend <laughs> yeah and so like from a setup standpoint, sophisticated yes Sorry. yeah like or cosmopolitan you know yeah so, very much so from a setup standpoint i feel like this is fairly traditional architecture for a campus novel and a coming of age novel. Like you have these pieces in place and um, that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. And there's really only so many ways to skin the cat. If you're going to be telling a story about somebody going off to college, but 
this book uh, is memorable and feels new for reasons that I'm still trying to um, define for myself. I think it has something to do with how lived in it feels. You know, you you come from a farm family. I know that from talking to you before we got started. I get the sense as I'm reading that a lot of this stuff is close to the bone in the way that it often is for fiction writers. Um, I never want to presume that you're not like working far afield, but I think you're, there's some autobiographical elements in there. Is that fair to say? Yes and no. Uh, I, I'm often miss mistaken for for Debbie so every second interview I do <laughs> people call me Debbie or they call Debbie Louise um I haven't done that also, I haven't done that yet though no no you haven't okay. you haven't no but no, there's still props. time <laughs> props yeah and and also I, I feel quite bad my family are really um supportive uh and my mother especially she's my first reader and the the mom in in Debbie's Debbie's story is Maeve is a bit mental and so everyone everyone assumes that that my mother is slightly unhinged <laughs> and she's been so great about it I like I cannot thank her enough for just like especially in Ireland because people talk in Ireland and like the neighbors have read the book and stuff and but yeah like uh Debbie's family situation is very different to mine but the elements of the farming background is true like uh, the details um are, are like i've basically scooped out my family and thrown in characters that are like my invisible friends like and and debbie very much started off as as an avatar of my 18 year old self like her uh, first day in university was similar to mine and so she only really came to life for me when she started doing things that I wouldn't necessarily do or um and and that's where the story really took off for me um and I remember when I first sent uh there's a proof going around the family and my uncle Joe rang me and he was like yeah Louise like um well done like it's great or whatever but uh Jesus, would you not send her off to New York or somewhere or just get it, get a bit away from, from, you know, your own life? And and he was quite uh, concerned for the next book because he was like, well, it's it's taken you 10 years to write this one. So do you have to like wait 10 years to live so you can like scoop out like all of the details of that life and throw different characters in? And he was so worried for me and, and frazzled. Um, and kind of uh, a bit uh, dubious of the whole uh, fiction writing uh, ability that I had because he was kind of like, sure, it's just the stuff from our lives, really. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, hey, if it takes me another 10 years, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so there's raw material there and the details are definitely raw material um but where i find it interesting and where the book sparks for me is not in the bits where it's close to the bone for me but actually in in the bits where i actually have no idea what what's going on but yes with with like the farm descriptions and 
and being slightly um, lost in a city, it, it comes down to to autobiographical experience. Sure. Uh, you know, it's funny that you talk about this book taking 10 years to write because it reads uh, beautifully and quickly. That was my experience of it. It goes down easy. Um, yeah. And it, ha- it gives the impression that you wrote it quickly, like not in a rush or like carelessly, but just like, I, I don't know. It's like, ah, oh, this is lived in. It just... It's easy for me to trick myself when I'm reading a good book. I'm like, this just shot out of her. Like, oh, you know, you know, but no, it took 10 years of labor and kind of working through the story and figuring out the world and the characters to get it to where it was that familiar. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I write quite slowly um, and I, f- I find writing very difficult. Uh, so it's really uh, a big compliment when people say that it, it was easy to read. Um, because it was it wasn't easy to write, um, and I really wish that it was easy to write. Um, but yeah, I'm. That's something that I'm probably most proud of about the book. That like my dad was able to read it, say, and and he found stuff in it that like spoke to him. Like he he's not a reader. He doesn't like I think the last book that he read was like a, a sports autobiography. Right. right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he communicates in he communi- communicates in sport and also farming. And I've I've kind of like a reputation around the farm as being the fairy, the one that doesn't really contribute much and um, is kind of like the one that's not around when things need to be done on the farm so seeing that I kind of connected to the farm at least on an imaginary level <laughs> came as quite a shock to him right uh, and I think it was a pleasant a pleasant surprise so while there's things in the book that like I look at the book and I am proud of it but I see it as like a flawed thing and like a failed experiment I definitely do um but the the fact that it's there in the first place is is something that's quite like miraculous to me and um and I I really I had to come home to write it as well I I don't think I could have written it anywhere else interesting uh, so yeah so um yeah that's it and it took you ten years you're thirty years old you said right so mm-hmm. you started this book when you were twenty eighteen actually I had, I had the idea. Um, and it's the reason I became a writer because I was so interested in in the idea uh, that I I chased it and well, what was the seedling part... what was the seedling you say you're interested right. in the idea what was the idea okay right so <laughs> um, so I dropped out of college uh, I had a very similar first date to Debbie when she went to university and uh, I, I came home and I was like I can't go back um, and I was quite burnt out from the leaving cert is, is the um, last year of college that we do to get into university. And it's quite stressful in Ireland. Uh, and I was burnt out from that and I got very depressed and down um, and I sort of slept a lot. And I had this really weird dream that I, I woke up from in the middle of the night and it felt like it wasn't, I, it felt like it didn't belong to me. And it's kind of embarrassing admit, admitting that. Um, and it wasn't like a it wasn't like a really dramatic dream. <laughs> and it wasn't something that was uh, suited for for fiction or whatever. It was the feeling that I felt. I felt like 
I had the contents of my head belong to somebody else and that felt like a violation and so I went to uh, my GP my parents were worried about me and he was asking me how I was sleeping and I was like oh well I had this really weird dream and so he um, referred me to a psychologist for a more expensive conversation and the psychiatrist put me on antidepressants and didn't really engage in in the whole (laughs) dream delusion um, and I just thought that that I, I kept on thinking about it. And the reason why I was so afraid was because I felt like the the stuff in the dream was um, it belonged to a man. And uh, and that was very clear to me. Was it about sports? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mayo lost the All-Ireland again. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, because I couldn't really talk about it or people thought that people, they didn't ridicule it because they didn't actually engage with it at at all. And I felt just really alone with it and a bit crazy. And I thought that the only way uh, to kind of explore it or express that fear and kind of face it somehow was through writing about it. And I kind of thought that it'd be a great idea for a novel. Uh, so f- I was like, okay, I'm going to write a novel about a, a, a woman who dreams other people's dreams, a girl who dreams other people's dreams. And that was the the concept. And then as soon as uh, I started writing, the characters just kind of like took off and they didn't really care about that concept at all. <laughs> um and it was ruining the story because, like you said, it is basically a college campus story. It's basically like a, a coming of age novel. But I didn't know that at the time. And I kept on trying to impose the dream onto onto the story uh, to such an extent that I had to use Maeve, the character of Maeve, as a scapegoat, basically, and give her all of that dream obsession nonsense um, so I could get on with the rest of telling the rest of the story um and and so the dreams basically are uh they're they're what i would change if i if i went back and had another shot at it i'm i would change how they inflect on on the story and they're uh, and, and one of my friends said louise you need to let go of the dreams. They're, <laughs> they're not serving the story anymore. Uh, it's great that you had this like concept, but like this is basically egoism now that you're you're still holding on to this concept, even though you have a perfectly good story like that's like set apart from it. But for me, that was the concept. That was the heart of the story, and I really wanted to honor the source of it. So even though it is. When people ask me, like, what was the original um, idea or the original concept, I'm kind of embarrassed uh, that I have to go into, delve into this story of, oh, yeah, I had someone else's dream when I was 18 and nobody believed me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I can't not say it as well, um, because it is it is embarrassing. It's like someone asks you, like, how did you get conceived? Or whatever, and it's <laughs> it's not like you know, it's not like the magical thing that you expect it to be. It's it's just like 
it's something kind of like funny and a bit weird what was the what was the content of the dream did you say no no and i i i i can't really remember it oh okay i can't remember it i can just remember the feeling okay that i had so So. there's a lot to unpack here there's a lot of (laughs) use i think there's a lot of useful lessons actually in this the first of which is that if you're out there and you're listening and you're struggling to think of a great idea for a novel but you want to write one step one is to become incredibly depressed and sleep for 14 hours a night yeah (laughs) and if you'll have some sort of uh, epiphany in your sleep potentially uh and then you know and obviously that's not a joke though that's not a joke people ask me for writing advice all the time and i'm literally the worst person to ask for advice because my sisters laugh they're because i was trying to give like heartfelt advice to people and they're like louise you wake up in the morning you have a cry you play with your niece you have a nap <laughs> then you, you might wake up and write a couple of sentences like that that's the whole perceived notion of of people like oh you you did it you're a success tell me tell me your secret and you're like <laughs> i hibernated for 10 years well and like <laughs> no and and you know i i like to joke but I think there is something to be said for, obviously there's a long like storied history uh, of the relationship between the creative impulse and mental illness, you know, like being depressed and writing a novel kind of go hand in hand. Um, Maybe not the whole way through, but often at like a point of genesis or at some point or multiple points along the way. And I think that maybe in American culture, I don't know how much of this uh, has seeped into Ireland, but when we get sick here, it's all about like powering through it and sort of like being proud of your immune system. I never get sick. I've only been sick once in seven years. I only need five hours of sleep a night. It's like competitive. Yeah. Competitive stressing is what I call it. You know, where you get like competitive over how stressed out you are and how exhausted you are and how strong you are and, Um, I think that if you're feeling sick or unwell, there is wisdom that is replicated throughout the animal kingdom, uh, in just lying down and resting. Why do we not do this? You know, like if an, if a dog or a cat or a squirrel or a coyote is injured, they just go lie down. They don't yeah. start talking about how they're going to get up to the next morning and go out and herd sheep or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a ridiculous human thing or go to, to the do. Gym. Or go to the gym or whatever we do. Or be I'm going to get my thousand words anyway, even though I have pneumonia, you know, and it's like all this nonsense. And so maybe there is something to it. You know, you rested and you clearly needed it. And I get that. Like I had a similar, not exactly similar, but, um, you know, I was I was similarly exhausted at the end of high school. And I didn't really care to go to college. I was like not interested in applying. I was over it. I was so sick of going to school. That's how I felt. Like how many yeah. times do I have to study for the test and take the test and get an A on the test or whatever you get on the test, you know? And just that process for, you know, for the first 18 years of my life. And then I got to now apply to go do more of this. Like I was just burnt. Yeah. And I think that... uh you know, I think a lot of people feel that way. I'm a big fan of the gap year for that reason. I think that a lot of people need a gap year to go like rest, you know, Absolutely. Or, or do something else. I would have benefited from that, I think. But um, 
so anyway, I, I think it makes there's some there's some wisdom I think in the fact that you slept. It wasn't just you know you being laziness, lazy, right? <laughs> um, another thing that I think we need to talk about is the ways in which creative epiphanies happen, which are often are not as cinematic as we wish they were, you know. Um, and you know, in this case, this is fairly cinematic. You had like this crazy dream that felt like it came from somebody else's head. That's interesting. And that is like a whole like high concept idea. But what I think is most instructive about it is the fact that you had this experience and then acted on it. It was powerful enough to you as a creative person to get you started writing a novel, which in some way lifted you out of your depression, or at least, you know, got you on that path to productivity and, and to not sleeping all the time. But then there came a point of departure where the original conceit and this seedling that you, that was delivered to you in your dreams lost its centrality in the narrative. And I think what's most instructive is the fact that you went with it. You trusted the story instead of trying to shoehorn this initial notion into the, into the center of it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think sometimes we get mm -hmm. very, we get very wed to that initial idea and we don't let the the story function as an organism that evolves and maybe has like a life and a mind of its own and so yeah i think it's a it's a useful thing to point out to people listening who might be trying to write a book that sometimes you have to let go a little bit absolutely i think that there's um there's a, a guy um a philosopher called john moriarty in ireland and he's a book called Dreamtime. And he quoted a uh, scientist, C.H. Uh, Waddington, I think is his name. <laughs> and he said, nature doesn't aim, it plays. And I think that's really uh, great advice for writing as well, because you can aim all you want, but how the story is going to come is by you sitting with the words and playing around with them. And no matter how much you aim towards something, or it's great to have something to aim towards. Um, you can't drag something out. It's it's always going to come organically from um, from the energy that that you create. So well, and I think like, too, like what what it's making me think of is you know, you're sitting there and playing with the words, as you said. Mm -hmm. You can't play unless you're sitting there. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. so it's like an old adage, you know, in, in craft books and, you know, people talking about writing, it's like, you got to show up. Yeah. And if you like that Stephen King on writing where he's like, the muse is like that really stoned guy who, uh, he's like the stone guy that never shows up to the appointment. And you have to be the one that you sit in the basement and you wait for him to come and he might never show up or he might show up like once in a, once a week for like 20 minutes but you have to be there um for whenever he might like wander into the room and i think i think that's great yeah for, a great analogy i i agree and i think for anybody listening who might be skeptical you know you start talking about the muse and stuff and sometimes people can roll their eyes <laughs> but i think if you've ever written a book and you go back and reread it which you have to do, you know, when you're in the editorial process. But also I think sometimes, you know, you might pass the bookshelf and pick up your own book and be like, what did I say again? 
And no, you don't do that. You're terrified of your own book. <laughs> I'm just embarrassed. Yeah. Well, but I, okay. Embarrassed, totally understandable. But I think sometimes too, a little bit like, like, um, weirded out or like, what? Like, where did this come from? Uh, so I'm just trying to say that like, sometimes you can look back on your book. If you ever want evidence of there actually being this kind of stone guy, who's never on time for the appointment slash muse, go back and reread something that you've published and you'll undoubtedly be like, wow, what, what, who was this person who wrote this thing? It's not all you, I guess is the point. Like there's something else happening yeah. uh, if you show up enough and you do the work. Yeah, but also like you're playing with your unconscious as well. So it is you and everything is you, you know? And like there's so much that we don't know about the world outside of us, but there's also so much that we don't know about ourselves. And I think that's the reason why most people are afraid to write. They're afraid about what's going to come out. They're afraid of what other people will think, but also they're afraid of what's going, what they're going to discover about themselves and all of the uncomfortable stuff. Um, and, and the judgment sets in way too early. Your inner critic comes in, like Judge Judy being like, well, that's not great or that's, that's shameful or you shouldn't write about that and get a real job. Right. <laughs> and, and for, for so many people, I think the reason I'm a writer is not because I'm the best writer, even in my zip code. You know, the reason that I'm a writer is because I am able through years of practice to shut down that voice that says, what are you doing? What, like, why, why are you doing this? Um, and I think like there's no such thing as like, intrinsic um talent or whatever it's it's just um it's just practice and it's it's practice in an emotional uh labor um, there, and there's so much energy that goes into writing that is emotional it's not your your typical nine to five day it's it's a vocation in, in a way um, and i'm never off the clock i'm always thinking about the fictional world that I inhabit as, as much as my daily world. And I know that's a very like woo woo thing to say, um, but it's true and it's, it's true for me. So uh, I love, I love that description. That makes perfect sense to me. I'm also wondering who lives in your zip code. Can we start some sort of competition here? <laughs> <laughs> Who's in your zip? Who are you clocking in your zip code? Oh, lady. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's it. Like, sorry, like, my like i had a, i had a conversation with a friend um the other day that she she writes about her maternal lineage and and mental health and she was saying that i write to express the things that my grandmother wasn't able to say or didn't have the opportunity to say and i think like i'm just really lucky to be able to be given the time and space uh to express some of the things that my ancestors never really got to think about or explore it's a rich way to live and it's a pain in the ass to do i'm speaking for myself maybe you oh yeah but i mean uh i think that there is something um 
like beneficial to my mental health that is connected to writing like the hard that emotional labor that you talked about like going through it i've never done a lot of talk i've never i've done talk therapy once but it feels like it performs a similar function for me i mean it's not to say that i wouldn't benefit from therapy but i go in and i'm sort of excavating um my life and experiences and uh, difficult emotional stuff in the writing um and finding expression and trying to kind of get a get a hold on it and draw it into focus. That's basically the same thing you're doing when you're talking it out with somebody. Maybe not exactly the same, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm just saying that like, even though like monetary rewards are usually very limited in the world of literature and even in, you know, cultures that have really peripheralized books and literature, you know, and, and focused more on other media you know, you might not get the kinds of rewards that come with, say, making a pop music album or something. But that work, the work itself, I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but the work itself being its own reward is, I think, a real thing. You know, like it, uh, it delivers a lot, of, uh, a lot of rewards in that way, is my experience. Yeah, yeah. But I would be, I'd be reluctant to say that writing is therapy for me. Uh, just because it's not monitored, you know, mm. it's just me with, I don't tr- like, I don't trust my thoughts. <laughs> and, uh, when I'm, but, but having said that, when, when you write fiction, you tap into a place that isn't really you, um, you, em- you're able to empathize with a person that isn't you. So like when I'm writing Debbie, I'm maybe dealing with my own issues, but I'm dealing it through the vehicle of, of the other. Um, and so you're able to kind of like detach your, your own. I'm not sure if I'm making any sense, but no, you are. And uh, you're you're making me think, but I mean, you're making me think like, again, my experience is limited here, but like in talk therapy, you're kind of otherizing yourself in a way by talking mm-hmm. about, you know, you're, you're objectifying yourself and your behaviors and your emotions in the presence of this like guide. And I think yeah. maybe it's not that writing is therapy. It's that it has therapeutic benefit. Um, yeah. Makes you Absolutely. feel better or, and there's some value. There's like, I think real deep value in just looking at things carefully. And mm-hmm. you were talking earlier about how a lot of people are scared to look <laughs> Um, you know, it's like, you don't want to see the boogeyman. You don't want to look under the bed cause you're terrified what might be down there. But I think Absolutely. what might be, you know, what, what I might be talking about when it comes to like the health benefits of this is that once you've kind of looked at it and confronted it, you can move past it a little bit, or at least you're not walking around with all that fear anymore or as much. Yeah. Well, like, I think what's like, like we tell we tell stories as a as a way of existing you know and a, as a way of like coping you know in the in the world around us so we're always telling stories we tell each we tell ourselves stories about ourselves right but when you're writing fiction you're telling the story of another person so you're coming outside of yourself and that's the most human thing to do is to connect with another person, whether that person is imaginary or not. And then you suddenly you open up the scope of telling story about yourself to so, suddenly 
telling a story about another person, th- but through through yourself. I, and I, I just think that that's uh, it's it's a connection thing again. You're you're connecting to the world in an imaginative way, but also in a way that reflects back into your sense of self. Um, so it's it's nice like that. So ten years. It yeah. Took, it took you to write this. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a number one international bestseller. So they say. I, I, I'm going to believe that. <laughs> like, yeah, because I was looking at it. I was like, does that mean it's the best-selling book in the world? I mean, like, honest question. <laughs> I'm, I don't think so. <laughs> this is a more popular book than the Bible. Uh, Louise yeah. Nealon, has, she has done it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the King James Bible is now number two. Um, but a, a big debut success, let's put it that way, in the, in the, in the, um, in the realm of literature. Like, you must be pleased to know that the book is finding readers and people are liking it. And it took you a decade. And we touched on that. You know, we talked about the book's origin stories and this depression that you went through um, around the age of 18. But then there's all these other years. And I'm assuming all these other iterations that the book went through as you kind of worked your way towards its final form. And then you have to get it published and go through the rigmarole of, you know, finding an agent and doing all the business part of being a writer. So can you, you know, I I know you're not going to be able to get to all of it, but can you talk a bit more about the process of, of writing it and getting it to where you needed it to be and then getting it into print? Okay. So, um, I, I went to university, um, during my twenties. So I had the idea. Uh, I did English in in college, and I wasn't really writing that that much. Oh, wait, so, wait um, so you went back to college? I went back to university, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, and I did four years there, uh, and I wasn't really writing that much because uh, I was reading The Greats, <laughs> and I, I had this high-concept idea, and I was like, oh, God, I'll just think about writing uh, instead of actually writing. And then I went up to Belfast to do a master's up there in creative writing. And that's really when it kind of took off. So I had uh, four years of not really writing, but like sketching things. And then once I had uh, a year in Belfast to do my master's, I began properly crafting scenes and tried different narration styles like it was originally in the third person i had billy in a completely separate story and uh i basically they converged all the characters were in different stories and they um converged because i was writing short stories at the same time as writing the novel interesting Uh, so i had this mess absolute mess of a manuscript and when i was in my masters I was in a class of maybe 12 people and this is the competition side coming out of me again I wasn't I thought that I was going to be the best in the class and I wasn't and I was really angry about that (laughs) but also it was a great learning experience because I those 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 people became my my really close friends and really close readers and made me a better writer and I got so much wisdom, not from the teachers, actually, even though the teachers were great, but from the people in the class. 
um, and they were my my go tos for for advice on the characters and the manuscript and and then when I finished the masters I was trying to be so I had jobs all through college um I milked cows with my dad notably and <laughs> I <laughs> was also uh, a really terrible waitress um all over the place but I I met great people through doing it and so many life lessons and I really just really admire people in in the service industry and I really wish I could make a proper go at it and be a really good waitress. <laughs> I feel like this but is this could be not. the this could be your second novel. I want to read the Louise Nealon table waiting novel. <laughs> I set a table on fire once. <laughs> Anyways, uh, wait, and wait. Then I worked at the bookshop with the candles like on the table and a... yeah. So I I put a, a napkin over a candle, but then there was it just went like burst into flames and there was an open kitchen. So I I didn't realize that I set the table on fire. So I like turned away <laughs> with all these dishes, and the chef was like clovers, <laughs> <laughs> and then a customer from a different table had to come up and like and put it out with his like bottle of water or whatever. Anyways, and then I was a bookseller as well. I worked in a bookshop and that was probably the job that suited me most. Um, but I eventually um, moved back from Belfast to home um, where I milked very occasionally, but mostly um, took the time to to write. And I, I wrote a short story, entered it into a competition like the way that you'd you'd do the lotto i wasn't really expecting anything what was the story and I got an email what was the story uh the story was called uh, what feminism is no one really remembers the title because it was just called the irish times reprinted it under the headline irish bad sex story um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> so irish mom, times yeah <laughs> so my mom was like on the phone to my aunties being like if you google louise nealon and bad sex it should come up <laughs> <laughs> You brought great joy and pride to your family. <laughs> to my family, yeah. Um, and then I got my agent through that, basically. My agent read that story in, in the Irish Times and she got in touch with me. I, I met her for coffee and she was basically like, you can do this for a living if you want. And I really didn't believe her, but uh, kind of went with it um, in the way that like, it was kind of like a date and you've no idea why the person fancies you. I had two short stories, one that I was happy with and one that I wasn't, and a mess of a manuscript. And I shared with her the idea for for the story and she got excited about it. And I was like, okay. And then she just said, if if you if you get this into shape, um, we can do this, this and this with it. And I was like, okay. Um, and so she was really instrumental um Marianne is her name Marianne Gunn O'Connor she's a great agent and uh probably she's the reason the book the book exists how it is in in its form now I probably would have gotten it out in the world eventually but she really gave me the the get up and go to actually get down to it and and get it together and um streamline it and uh in a presentable manner she was she was great so great not only like motivating you and i think you know 
just somebody telling you you're good at something and then somebody making it real, like, you know, you can do this. Yeah. This is an actual thing. This is not some sort of figment of your imagination. Um, and then basically she becomes your, your first reader, you know, your agent. This is often how agents function or most of the time, this is how they function. Um, and that early editorial feedback, it's an intimate creative partnership. Yeah. Yeah. And she was really, really encouraging. And also she had, she had great connections. She's a really badass businesswoman. She's the only person I know who has a positivity bias. As she, she's able to see opportunities where people don't. And she was able to sell um, the novel before the pandemic hit, uh, which is really um, lucky. And she, she's just all these um, great connections, but also she's very creative. Um, and that's something that I don't think is common in in the business world. Um, she's just, I was, I was incredibly lucky to have crossed paths with, paths with her. So, as you're saying all this, I'm having like this uh, self-critical inner, you know, kind of monologue about the fact that I don't have positivity bias. I can't say that I do. I guess <laughs> to make sure nobody agent... does. <laughs> right. Nobody does. I'm I have to I have to apologize to you for not being the second person you've ever met with a positivity bias. It's okay. Yeah. Well, but that's a you know, this is again, like there are lots of kind of lessons packed into the stories that you're telling me. You know, it's about submitting the story to the competition, even though it feels like the lotto. What happens yeah. if you don't do that? What happens to your life if you don't do that? If you don't say, Well, yeah. I'm gonna put my name in the hat. Yeah, I mean, the odds are that nothing will happen. But what if something does? Look at you now. Number one international yeah. bestseller. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and so there's that lesson. And then I think the lesson, too, is that nobody does anything on their own, even though writing is this solitary thing, you know, in the popular perception. And, you know, so much of the labor really is done by you and you alone in front of your keyboard or your notebook or whatever it is. But once you get past that point of composition, or at least the first or second draft, if you want to make a career of it, and if you want to get yourself into print, you, you will need help, um, a Absolutely. lot of help. And so I think that's instructive, um, this story about you and this agent who has helped to launch you and has given you a foothold in publishing and who saw something in you that you did not necessarily see in yourself. You know, artists, yeah, artists actually, need, I should point out, sorry, go on. I, I was just going to say artists need, you know, we need champions, um, yeah. in, in order to survive. Yeah. yeah. And I should say as well, like Marianne definitely was not the only one who, who propped me up when I needed propping up. Like my mom, um, she's the one that kind of twisted my arm to apply for the masters in Belfast. Um, and the reason I went there was it was the only one that was still accepting <laughs> applications. <laughs> so that was lucky. That narrows and it then, down. Like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then there was my secondary school English teacher as well, like my high school English teacher, who she's the reason I went to uh, Trinity. Like, she's the reason I wanted to go to college there because she did English in Trinity and I looked up to her so much 
and she's the first person who told me that I was like able to write that I was able to storytell you know and I was so vulnerable back then and uh, she's the first person I mentioned in, in my acknowledgements because she's a writer as well and um, I think that like te- having teachers like that who go above and beyond to like empower their students um, especially in a creative way is just uh, that's like incredible so you yeah. join an illustrious line of guests on this show who have pointed to a teacher in their youth who was the first person to tell them that they could write and I had that too when I was in seventh grade I remember it you remember these things and people this it makes me think that we should all pay more sincere compliments it's something I don't do enough it's not don't don't be phony about it you can't just be throwing them around just to be not you know fake nice like it's got to be real (laughs) willy-nilly yeah yeah but (laughs) if if you genuinely admire something about somebody or even if you're jealous of somebody, because people love it when you're jealous of them, right? They're like, ooh, tell me more. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's tied to what yeah. we were talking about earlier. But like, my God, we are all so fragile and uh, wondering where we fit. Every single one of us practically that uh, who doesn't love a compliment? And it means so much. And I think especially when you're a kid and an adolescent and it's like, just tell me, tell me what I'm good at, please. It, you know, it. It is maybe not surprisingly, but it's it's notably common that people who go yeah. on to write and publish had some teacher in their youth who told them that they were a good writer. And honestly, yeah. I sometimes wonder if my science teacher had been like, you know what, you would make a great surgeon. I probably would have pursued that. I'm just like, just tell me what to do. I have no idea who I am. You know, like define yeah, me for myself. Yeah, you're so yeah you're so impressionable at that time as well that it can go either way yeah absolutely like because I had a I had a teacher in school who really like took a dislike to me because I was quite um I was like a big nerd but like really wanted to impress and especially in English and I gave these big long-winded answers do you know when they ask you to read out your response to the text or whatever and like one student would be like like a sentence and and then they'd ask me and I'd be there for like like 10 minutes (laughs) to the point where she'd have to like interrupt me and be like oh Jesus it's not all about you and she she marked me down on on my essays loads um to a point where like I I was like crying at home and like I really I doubted myself and it was I was at that point when I had a change in teacher and she kind of like saw saw me as like I don't think she actually saw me as annoying I think that teacher saw me as annoying but she she kind of just saw the energy there and she was like okay maybe don't speak for like 10 minutes in class but definitely write that much and definitely like um she had way more patience you know and um to, to the point where, like, I really owe her a lot because it could have gone either way, you know? Mm. She probably recognized herself in you. I mean, you were authentically enthused. You cared, you know? And you're, you're to be forgiven if you're 16 years old and a little bit long-winded because you're, like, geeking out over a book. I mean, that's kind of yeah. what you want. So I think maybe that teacher just recognized 
like the first teacher, the one who marked you down, I think misapprehended your enthusiasm <laughs> for some sort of uh, character flaw or like, you know, you, you wanting to <laughs> be, a, you wanting to be a know-it-all. And the second teacher just recognized that you love books and writing. Yeah. And I'm really good friends with her now. Like we've a really like great relationship. Like we like have coffee and stuff and like send each other books still. So it's, and if my 18 year old self or 16 year old self knew that at the time of meeting her like that, cause she was my God back then. And when I dropped out of college, she actually sent me uh, a message being like, do you want to meet for coffee? And that was like the hand of God coming down you know right and uh she was so generous in having coffee with me and being like well, well like where do you want to go from here and she was the first person that i sent chapters of the novel to and i'm just so grateful to her for that wow know? that's a te that's a teacher for you yeah absolutely you know yeah. most teachers just kind of like once you're out the door they're like okay on to the next you know yeah but she cared <laughs> enough to to see where you were going and uh that's ideally how it should be you know cared about you as a person mm. it's very uh, lucky. i want to ask you about the word culture which i had to google <laughs> <laughs> i had to google this because i mean i kind of i thought i th i thought i had it and then i wondered about you know i, I second guessed myself and then i i'm glad that i looked it up but i will have what, you what do you think it was um I didn't realize that it had like a rural, I, I was thinking it had something to do with somebody who was like really like culturally either one, one way or the other, like really culturally adept or not. I don't know. I was confused, you know, cause it had that, the, the, the sound, you know, culture, it had the word culture embedded in it. Yeah, so yeah. I looked it up just to make sure I was clear, but why don't you for listeners tell us what culture means in the Irish vernacular? Right. So um, there's a big divide between the city and and rural um, population. So if you live in the city, you're a city slicker. But um, there's three types of people in in rural Ireland and um, they would be uh, townies who, who live in towns, boggers who live in the bog and culchies and and culchies live in villages in ireland um small parishes uh and they're kind of looked down upon um by city slickers as being very provincial and a bit naive um so there's a, there's a, a a specific date uh, the 8th of december um, where Colchis come up to Dublin for the Christmas shopping. And that's that's a day for um, people to be kind of like forgiving of the naivety of um, these country bumpkin idiots who, who don't know how to navigate uh, the, their, the environs of, of the city and are really just safe at home in, in their villages where everything is is familiar and they can go to mass and pick up their their shopping and and say hello to people that they they know by name so that's what that's what a culture is they're they're someone who are from small villages in ireland usually a farming background who um are kind of uh very provincial and a bit naive well you know 
I don't think I need to point this out to you, but it should be said that if these uh, city slickers are are uh, in a mood to draw distinctions and to take <laughs> pride in the fact that they have all of this cosmopolitan knowledge, it works both ways. Why don't they come out to the to the village and, and help you birth a calf or whatever it is? Yeah. You know, like let's see them milk some cows. I think that uh, <laughs> you know they might look very much lost in those activities, right? So. I don't Absolutely. know. The yeah. same dynamics exist here too. I mean, uh, there's really, I uh, maybe maybe to a degree that exceeds uh the way that it used to be uh, a class divide between urban and rural. Um not just a cultural divide, but you know, if you really draw like the way that population patterns have um materialized here in the states at least, you know, you have all these people and all this young like educated um, you know, all these, all these young educated people kind of swarming into big cities and smaller towns and more rural areas, losing, losing young people, losing population numbers. And, um, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. I don't want to talk in too simple of terms, but I do think that, that a lot of the tensions that exist between city slickers and culchies or boggers or whatever you want to call it, um, has to do with those trends. I mean, uh, and it seems like they exist that way in Ireland as well. Absolutely. Is that that's the way it's yeah, moving? You know, similar. yeah. Um, I fantasize about living on a farm, and in particular in like the north of England or in Ireland. I love border collies. I used to have one. Do you have border collies on your farm? Yeah, we've two. Oh, two. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I come to Ireland, I'm going to have to come pet your dogs and say hello because. <laughs> They're the well, best. Molly won't pet you. Or Molly won't pet you. <laughs> you won't be able to pet Molly because she runs. She runs away from humans. She does like. She's very much like just a work dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she she's no interest in in physical affection. She's getting better. She Whereas might Ted like is, me. Ted is a big gobshite. De- Ted is actually immortalized in in the dog in the book called Jacob. Oh, okay. Who, uh, he he just fucks up on a colossal colossal level all of the time. And never does his job right, but is really spoiled. And like, so Ted, we we had Ted's great grandfather in our family. So he comes from a line of sure. of border colleagues, and he knows his lineage. He he must do. He must he must know that he we, like we'll never get rid of him because he he just. He's just very comfortable in his um, in his lineage and his his heir to the the throne on on the on the grass. Are they are they <laughs> what what do they look like? Are they black and white borders? Are they merle? Like what what's the coat? So uh, Molly is uh, she's she's black and white, and there's a bit of husky in Ted, so he's um, a bit brown. So he's black, white, and brown, okay. um, and very very handsome in a way that like a man would be handsome but even if he let himself go you know like there's no way that he couldn't be unhandsome even if he has a bit of a belly on him he, he's just really good genes you yeah. know i wish i like i wish yeah. i was that guy i gotta work so hard I'm, you know, I'm, that they were that guy. <laughs> yeah just like i want to be that person who like ages and you're like yes yes like they look fantastic but like I take like a picture of myself, I take a selfie at the wrong angle and it's like, it ruins my day. I'm just like, Oh, <laughs> uh, but okay. I'm, I'm jealous of your dogs and I'm jealous of like 
you know, at least this idealized version of farm life that I have in my head. I know because a friend of mine is a farmer and has been his entire career that it's extremely difficult work. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you're never off the clock, really. And the physical labor of farming, I guess it might vary a little bit from farm to farm depending on what you're, exactly what you're doing. But my friend, who I just saw not too long ago, was describing to me the physical toll that it takes on the body to farm once you get to our age, which, you know, we're still relatively young. I'm in my 40s. But he was just describing how his friend, like, gets up out of a chair and is just like, you know, and he's he's got to, like, struggle because his back is so messed up. And yet he'll still be able to do all of this incredible labor physically because his body's so used to just kind of going through the motions. But I don't know. It yeah. just, uh, it, that sort of took some of the shine off the diamond for me. I was like, okay, now I'm feeling better about not, not having a gentleman's farm. This is a, this is hard yeah. work. It's not something you just like, you just go there and the dogs all come, you know, gather around you and you head out to the pasture to herd sheep. It's not that simple. No, okay. no. Okay. And, and you're, you're exactly describing my dad getting up from a chair when, when you're describing your, your friend, only my dad is in his sixties now. So it's a, it's a young man's game, he says, oh, yeah. but he can also never imagine retiring because that would be giving up, <laughs> but it's great. Um, it's a great job for an older man as well, because he can kind of do as much as he wants. And my brother's on the farm as well. And we have a couple of other guys so he can delegate and and still be part of it where and do as much as he can you know so andy has you to sit on the sidelines and do nothing oh god absolutely <laughs> not yeah that's that's the whole that's where the whole like anxiety of productivity came in as well and because i live in a space that's so focused towards productivity and and getting things done and so practical uh, whereas my day is very, uh, it's just the complete antithesis, antithesis of that. And that was sometimes frustrating. Um, but frustrating for who you or, or your dad or both? Both. <laughs> yeah. Both. Well, um, yeah. I, I was just going to say, yeah. I think that, I think that a, a lot of times that that's why a good day writing feels so good is because there's so many bad days where like if you can just I can come down on myself because you just feel like such a failure you look back yep. at your day and like what did I do I just kind of sat here and wrote a bunch of shit that's never going to be you know it's never going to see the light of day it doesn't even make any sense you know like yeah. but that's the work you know and it's I think for people who have more conventional jobs you know and by comparison just about any job seems conventional when you compare it to you know, sitting in front of a computer and staring at a flashing cursor all day long. And, um, you know, so people can have a heart. My, you know, I've been through the same thing with my family. Like, what are you doing all day? And yeah. but you're just sitting there and I'm like, yeah, but you have to just sit there. You know, like <laughs> you have to like yeah. have the space to get lost, you know, basically. Like, this, this is the work. The work is doing nothing. Yeah. The work is Right. sitting here right. and my dad's just like do something yeah he's like i've been up since 5 a.m i have uh you know i don't know what i i wouldn't even know what what kind of farmer is your dad like what is he growing he's a dairy farmer is dairy farmer so he, he milk milks cows yeah he's like i've milked 75 cows this morning i've got uh, enough milk to 
provide the entire village with a you know mel you know and you, meanwhile you're sitting there like staring at your computer like slightly cross-eyed <laughs> for six hours <laughs> well hey listen it, listen it takes all kinds and you have memorialized the farm and the farm life beautifully in your book which like as you said your father is pleased with so you're doing something for the farm you're you're uh immortalizing it you know and Thanks. i i really enjoyed this book and i mean it when i say it uh, it reads easily and that's high praise because I think that hard writing yields easy reading more often than not and you've done the work um, and I'm just glad we got a chance to do this one for the book club and, and spotlight it because I love I love college novels and campus novels and novels about youth uh, and this one hits all those notes but it also does some things that are new and very unique to it and it's a very like it's a deeply wise novel for a, a book written by someone so young. So c congratulations to you for that. And um, I'm excited to see what you come up with next. I hope it doesn't take a decade selfishly, but if it does, we'll wait. <laughs> like, are you, are you at work on another one? Yeah. Yeah. Currently at work with, um, with book two and it's going okay. Like it's not like, it's not, yeah, it's, I'm tentatively, excited about it and who, uh, whose dream so... whose dreams did you pilfer this time for the idea for this? <laughs> no dreams None. no dreams no, anymore nothing <laughs> nothing supernatural uh and you live and you're no. living in the the same uh place that you grew up right so you're in um what i'm imagining is like a bucolic beautiful irish setting that you know it is... really is it's gorgeous um, but I'm I'm moving to Belfast again um, at the end of this month, actually. Oh, you are. So uh, I, yeah, I'm really excited uh, to give my parents a bit of breathing room. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 really really um, lucky to be where I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna have to Google County Kildare and uh, like I I'm so I, like. It is not hyperbole to say that I'm obsessed with border collies. It's like when I can't sleep at night, I go onto the internet and just look at pictures of these dogs. Um, and I don't mean to, wow. my, my dog who is not a border collie is behind me. I don't mean to, uh, I love her dearly, but she's not a border collie. I hope she doesn't feel like I'm being unfaithful, but they're just, I don't live on a farm. I live in a city, so it's hard to have a collie here. Uh, yeah. but, but one day, this is my theory of I'm, one day I'm going to have another border collie because I loved uh, my dog that I had in my 20s uh, Merlin he was a great dog and so smart amazing uh, yeah but, but even like people and their dogs are, are really like the culture of even indoor dogs is really foreign to us because like our dogs are just outside all of the time sure. and like the fact that you can't let your dog outside your house without a leash in the city is just so foreign to us um, and that's that's really crazy. Where do your dogs but... sleep? You got like a, a kennel or some sort of like doghouse or something? Or just they out? find somewhere. Like they just, they hang out in the shed. They're fine. Like. They've got shelter. Um, if it, they've got shelter if it's like snowing or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we don't, we don't have a specific like kennel for them or, or, or whatever. It's, it's very much, they look after themselves. They work for their food. <laughs> and and those dogs too, they. I mean, wait, do they herd cattle? They must. They go out and herd cattle, right? 
they're supposed to. They're supposed to. Yeah. Well, yeah. I read um, somewhere. Ted, Ted doesn't. Yeah, that's because Ted's got that husky in him. He's like, uh, he wants to mush. He wants yeah. to like pull a sleigh. But uh, I yeah. read somewhere that border collies on a working ranch will like run an average of like 75 miles a day or something like that. You know, they can at oh, least. God. So they, these dogs can, if yeah. you know, they can yeah. really go. Ah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think their, their mileage is up that much, but. Um, I could be, I could be. They, Maybe they I'm, do. I could be exaggerating this. My love of these dogs is so intense. I'm I'm giving them super dog powers. <laughs> they can run across the entire state and back before sundown. They're incredible. <laughs> um, what is the new novel about? Can you give us a hint? I don't want. I know people get superstitious about this, so I don't want to. You know. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not talking about it. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. No. I ha- Listen, it's <laughs> but my... But it's like, it's like a really like... Um, do you know when like people are, are pregnant and they don't want to say yet? Yes, yes. You know, it kind of feels like that. It's like, I'm not sure if it's a viable pregnancy yet. Okay. <laughs> Beautifully put. It's my job to ask, but I, I accept the <laughs> answer. Uh, it's been great to meet you and to talk with you. Congratulations on the success of Snowflake. I will wish you nothing but the best on book number two. Um, I hope it, it, it all works out. Good luck with the move to Belfast. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I assume it will be fun. And, uh, hopefully when this, you know, this second book, um, finds its way into the world, we can talk again. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. There you go. That is Louise Nealon. Her debut novel is called Snowflake available now from Harper Books. It is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, number one international bestseller. Come on. You can find Louise on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Louise underscore Nealon. Once again, the novel is called Snowflake. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash otherpplpod. If you want to email me, if you have thoughts that you would like to share, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel. Don't forget to go subscribe over there. If you want to join the TNB Book Club... You can do that at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar. The Other People podcast has its own app. Did you know that? It has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. If you want to get Other People merch, if you want to get a t-shirt, you can do that over at otherppl.com, the show's official website. You'll see a t-shirt in the left sidebar. Click on that t-shirt. Go buy a t-shirt. These are very soft, comfortable t-shirts. I'm very picky about t-shirts. I like these t-shirts. They're good t-shirts. Get a t-shirt. What do you think? Go out in public fully branded. Got some good uh, conversations in the pipeline, you guys. I don't know exactly who's coming up next. But I'm just looking through the list here. I've been busy. I've got a lot of interviews coming up, too, including some big ones. I've got so much reading to do. I don't mean to complain, but I mean, Jesus. 
It's overwhelming. The speed. It's like, uh, you know, drinking from a fire hose. But it's all for a good cause. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.